Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-386. This is Chris, your host. How are we doing on this fine spring day? I love May, don't you? Up here in New England, it's a time of rebirth. The trees and the bushes, they go from being brown to green in the span of a few days, like one of those slow-motion nature videos. And we're close by the summer solstice. We get back all those long, dark winter days. The sunrise today, 5.19 a.m. And the sunset, 8.02. Plenty of time to get stuff done. And it's still cool in the mornings. And it hasn't gotten hot yet during the days. And this is the week of Mother's Day when those of us who have read the Farmer's Almanac start planting our gardens up here in New England. And those of us who are over-enthusiastic have to replant what they killed by planting two weeks ago when it first got warm. So today I have an interview with Pat, who is from Calgary and ran his first Boston Marathon this year in the epic weather. In section one, I'll give you a write-up of the trail race I ran last weekend. And in section two, a quick book report on the second book in the Takashi Kovacs series. A real grab bag of topics for you today. And you might ask, Chris, it seems like you're just stuffing random topics into a show to make a deadline. And I would answer, no, I am embracing a random universe. I am satisfying the souls of the Renaissance women and men who are endurance athletes. And, well, you know, a deadline is a deadline. My training for my first 100-miler is going as well as can be expected. I topped out a couple of 50-plus-mile trail weeks, and now I'm in a recovery week to get the benefit. With the long days, I can go out in the morning in the forest behind my house, and I can be back before most people are even awake. It's beautiful out there. The trails are drying up nicely. I take Buddy, the elderly wonder dog, with me for the first two-mile loop, and he loves it. He's a trooper. In the morning, it's cool. The bugs aren't out. So let me tell you the story about Buddy's soccer ball. So many moons ago, when I was a soccer dad, a soccer coach, 
for my kids. I ended up with a kid's soccer ball in my bag of soccer balls from the field one day. And it was one of those sort of undersized little balls for the kids. And it eventually ended up in my front yard and became the dog's soccer ball. So Buddy was gentle with it. He, he used to carry it around, but he never popped it. He just played with it. And for a decade or so, it was a fixture in my front yard with the elderly Border Collie. But this spring, unknown to me, it disappeared. And a couple weeks ago, I was out in the trails behind my house, and there was Buddy's soccer ball, about a quarter mile from the house, on the trail, down by the Boy Scout Bridge. I didn't pick it up at the time. And then yesterday I was out again, and I saw it again, now maybe three quarters of a mile out on the trail, way over by the other road on the other side. And it seems some friendly interloping dog came out of the trails and into our yard, maybe to say hi to Buddy, and took Buddy's soccer ball as a token for a carry in the woods. Probably a Labrador retriever, if I had my guess. They love balls. The problem is, I don't come back the same way, the same trail they go, that I go out on, so I couldn't, like, carry the ball back to the house without taking it with me on my entire run. But yesterday, it didn't seem right to abandon it, so I grabbed it and I carried it with me as I was running through the woods. And it was weird. I was like some grade schooler goalie given a coach's penalty. Like, hey, take that ball with you and give me 20 laps. So a muddy, half-deflated kid's soccer ball isn't as easy to carry as you would think. I didn't want to put it under my arm like an American football because it was quite muddy. And so I had to sort of clench it in one hand, and it was a bit unwieldy. But now it is back where it belongs, lying in the grass beside an elderly border collie until a thieving rover roves by once more. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. The what? The what packing back? Or how road marathon training translates poorly to mountain running? I was having trouble walking. My quads were totally trashed. Like one of those newbie flatlanders after racing the downhills at their first Boston Marathon. My balance was wonky from the lack of strength in my hips and my quads. And I was stumbling a bit as those body parts weren't doing what my brain was telling them. And my mom asked me, she said, are you okay? I was okay. But I was a bit worried that I may have overdone it this weekend. Here I was bringing some flowers to Mother's Day and chatting with my mom. And I felt like a train wreck. What the heck? I mean, I'm indestructible, right? Hmm. So I went over to visit my mom on Sunday after a morning ten and a half mile trail run with my buddies around the Nashville River in the Groton Town Forest, and I was glad they showed up. I was super hurting from pushing through the Wapak Trail end to end, twenty one and a half miles the day before, and I could tell my legs were gone. But the whole point 
of my ultramarathon training is to train on trash legs. And if that was the intent, I think I nailed it. (laughs) Saturday morning, when I showed up at the Watetic Mountain Trailhead, I was excited. It's only a 45-minute drive northwest for me. I love the trails up there on the border of New Hampshire and Massachusetts. I was looking forward to getting out there, having some fun. I am in the throes of training for my first 100-mile race, and the meat of the training is back-to-back long trail runs on the weekends. Saturday multi-hour runs followed by Sunday runs on tired legs to simulate the 100. The plan called for 25 miles on Saturday, and another 10 on Sunday. And I was looking through the Trail Animal Running Club, or TARC, Facebook page earlier in the week, hoping to find some interesting local long trail run options, and I saw that they were hosting the Wapak and Back races up at Watadik. And this is a race I'm sort of familiar with because my club, the Squanacook River Runners, hosts the Wapak Trail Race, 18-miler, on part of the same trail, the same course, in the fall on Labor Day weekend. And that has always been one of my favorite races. So this spring version of the race has a 50-mile option, a 43-mile option, and a 21.5-mile option. And knowing the difficulty of this course, at least the half I was familiar with, I figured 21.5 on these trails is worth, yeah, about 50k of regular trails. And this would be a perfect substitute for my planned 25-mile training run. Perfect! So I saw a registration button on the website, promptly signed up, went through the credit card thing, received a confirmation email. Saturday morning, I drove up to the start, excited about running some mountains. Name? The volunteer asked. Russell, I said, smiling in my bright orange Wapak Trail Race shirt. I was among my tribe. This was going to be epic. You're not listed. Really? Maybe I didn't make the printout because I just registered this week. You mean you signed up for the wait list? This race has been sold out for over two months. Huh. I thought I got a confirmation email. Hold on, let me check. Sure enough, the confirmation I got was, you're on the wait list. I just hadn't read it. <laughs> I apologized profusely and told them it was totally cool. I knew the course. I'd run a dozen times. I was here anyhow. I'd just go run myself. No worries. And the race director was listening to all this, and he sort of shook his head and said to the volunteer, write him in, give him a number. And to me, he said, get on the bus. He knew I was one of those people who organized the fall race, and he could tell I probably wasn't a risk to the race I wasn't some crazy newbie showing up to try a trail race. And that's how my lack of attention to detail caused me to bandit the Wapakit back last weekend. (laughs) Technically, I ran the 21.5 Wapak trail end-to-end, not the Wapak and back. The end-back people ran it twice for 43 miles, and the 50-milers added Watetic Mountain and a bit of Pratt Mountain again, to add another seven miles at the end. So the 50-mile folks ran out and back the length of Wapak and then out and back again to make up the difference. And I guess that would be Wapak and back and Wapak and back. This is not 
an easy course. The part of the course I am familiar with is the southern half of the Wapak Trail, where we run our fall race. And we do an 18-mile out and back from windblown ski area in Ipswich, New Hampshire, to the parking lot of Watetic Mountain. We turn around, we run back. And our version traverses four mountains twice for about 4,000, yeah, less than 4,000 feet of elevation gain. A lot of it on gnarly technical single path in the mountains. So the full Wapak Trail starts another 11 or so miles north from where our race starts, and it starts on the far side, the north side of North Pack Monadnock Mountain. They bust us up there for a 9 a.m. start, and based on my experience with this trail, I figured it would take me four to five hours to run the whole 21 and a half, which seems slow, but it's that's a decent effort for this course. Even the course record is over three hours for this 21 miles. On the bus ride up and waiting for the start, I was chatting with the folks and listening. And you know you're at an ultramarathon or a trail race when the elites are talking about what their favorite microbrews are. Lots of skinny, hard-looking, happy guys with excellent beards. I was glad they let me run with them. It's like some happy, hippie, skinny lumberjack festival. I wasn't worried about finishing. It was just a training run for me. I knew I had the legs and the fitness for my Boston training cycle, and I also knew that I'd get a chance to practice my hiking skills on the climbs and test some of my nutrition strategies, and I knew I'd have to be careful on the technical downhills. I wasn't trained for that and didn't want to break anything. I always joke that the over-under for me falling down in a technical trail race is five, and the line for me getting lost is two. So place your bets. It was a chilly morning and overcast at the start. The general consensus was that it would start raining at some point during the day. And rain can be an issue on this course because the footing gets slick. The rain brings out the natural slickness in the rocks and the roots. When you're trying to navigate technical climbs and descents, it adds another challenge to your foot placement skills. And it's hard not to think, it was hard for me not to think about the recent Boston weather event and how badly I had called that because I had just the tech t shirt, uh, regular shorts, my Diabetes Actions Team racing hat from the 2012 Chicago Marathon. And in hindsight, I probably could have used my rain shell. I did think enough to throw a pair of tech gloves in the bag before I left. I wore my Hoka Challenger trail shoes. And I was wearing my water pack with a full 1.5 liters in the bladder. And I experimented with putting a couple, two of my homemade smoothie bottles in the pack, too. They had worked so well last year at that uh, Kettletown 50K. And I also had my handheld, my old bike bottle with F2C Endurance Mix in it. And that was probably too much weight. I mean, that's more than three liters of fluid in my backpack. And I could feel it on the first couple of climbs. I think one smoothie would have been the right call for this distance. And since it was a chilly day, I never refilled the pack bladder, although I drank most of the water in it. I did top off my handheld a couple times and uh, drank one of the smoothies while I was out in the trail. The race started by slamming us right into a climb. About a 1,000 feet of vertical up the back of North Pack Monadnock Mountain. 
and I may have gone out a little too hard. <laughs> My heart rate was hammering, and I quickly switched to hiking up the rocky single path. I was trying to conserve some energy and practice that continued forward motion tactic that an ultra requires, right? As long as you're moving forward, you're making progress. And then we crested North Pack Monadnock and dropped into the saddle and then slammed right back into the climb up Pack Monadnock. And I was feeling the weight of my full pack up these, but kept hiking forward without any issues. And my heart rate settled in and I settled in for that long mountain race I had come here for. And then the, the descent down the back of Pac-Manadnock was a doozy. The trail cut down through a broken field of refrigerator-sized boulders, and I was pretty slow on these technical descents. This is where my fitness and my marathon training, yeah, it was fairly worthless. This kind of running is like doing a couple thousand forward lunges in a row. So I slowed down on these sections, and I, I knew I didn't have that fitness, and I didn't want to crash or fall. So falling can be seriously painful on these steep rock fields. But by slowing down, I was fighting gravity more and adding to that quad burnout that would end up haunting me all week. The elites, they just bounce down these sections like little flying wood elf monkeys. I got past a lot <laughs> on the descents, but then I'd make up time on the flats and the and the climbs where my marathon training was reasonably useful. Coming down the backside of Pac-Manadnock, I checked my watch, and we were averaging somewhere slower than four miles an hour. Yep, I laughed at this. I was, quote-unquote, running about a fast walking pace uh, on uh, if we were on level ground. So we got some reasonable rolling trail into that first aid station after coming off a pack and then slammed right into the gravel road that climbs up Temple Mountain. And I was feeling like I was behind schedule for some reason and did a good job of power hiking. I really pushed it up the Temple Mountain road. And I was feeling good, but I was a little confused to where I was on the course. I knew it joined up with the section I was familiar with at some point but didn't know where or when that was. And all this technical single track with rocks and roots and trees, it all looks kind of the same at times. The other thing I was under-trained, or at least under-seasoned for, was the abuse my feet were taking on the technical trails. You know, not blisters, just bruising from all the weird angles and impacts that you don't get when you're training for road courses. The trail was surprisingly dry, even though it's been a wet spring. It did start in with a cold drizzle about two hours into my race, but under the canopy, it really didn't bother you, and there wasn't a driving wind like like we had at Boston, so it wasn't bad. It's a little chilly, not bad. It did make the views a bit less enthralling. Since this trail runs the ridgeline of all these mountains, you pop out into the open on top of mountains, and you get these wonderful panoramic views of the area. And with the cloud cover, not so much. I hit the second aid station in fine form and dug out one of my smoothies to drink. I also choked down a couple Endurolites to keep my electrolytes up uh, and topped off my handheld. The smoothie tasted great, so I drank the whole thing, and I probably should have just had half because my tummy got a little, little rumbly at that point. Nothing bad. Then, coming out of the second aid station, we crossed a road, and I knew where I was. 
It was the entrance to the windblown ski area and the starting line of our 18-mile race in the fall. And it was, as they say, all downhill from here. Now I simply had to climb and descend four more familiar mountains to get back to my truck at Watetic. Piece of cake. And I really enjoyed the swoopy section between the back of Pratt Mountain and Binney Road Aid Station. Nice pine needle level swoopy trails. And since I knew the course, I could stretch my stride out a little and get a good flow going. And I had a couple of guys right on my heels, and they were they were loving it. They were I was just dragging them through this section. They were they were commenting on how comfortable I looked. I slowed down a bit coming down the final descent off the back of Watetic. My legs were pretty trashed, and I I knew it, so I wanted to be careful. Watetic is a very popular day hike destination, so the trails are pretty mangled by erosion on the backside. You know the 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 Wapak people should probably stake off some sections to keep it from degrading so much. And then there I was, trotting happily into the Watetic parking lot, just a little after five hours of hiking and running. And they gave all the finishers a cookie with the trail map on it that was very cute. I thanked the race director and made my way back to the truck before hypothermia could take hold. It was a good day of trail running. I was more thrashed than I thought I would be. I was hoping to do some yard work later in that day, but ended up couch-bound, and uh, there may have been a nap involved. It being a cold, wet day, I didn't think my nutrition strategies got a real test, but I'm comfortable with being able to race with the backpack and to keep my energy up. My engine is good, and I'm fairly well-fat adapted. I ran the following day, like I said, 10.5-mile trail run with my buddies, and I felt totally trashed after that. I could barely walk the rest of Sunday and Monday. I can't remember my quads being so sore. I had to go, down, I had to go downstairs sideways for two days. That, I never get that sore. Uh, so I'm partly happy to get that good shot of training this early in the cycle, and I'm partly frightened of how badly it beat me up. So all in all, successful outing, didn't fall down once, didn't get lost at all, met some nice people, had an adventure, loved those New England trails. And now for today's featured interview. All right, so Patrick, how are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, give me the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do. I am a desk jockey in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and been running seriously for about nine years. Did my first marathon in 2014. Qualified last August for Boston and uh, had the opportunity to uh, run last month with my brother, actually. Oh, yeah? There's actually a long history of Canadians in the Boston Marathon, as you would assume, right? Yes. The first hundred years or so of Boston, Canadians won a whole bunch of them. Mostly Quebecois, but some folks from Ontario as well, I believe. And Nova Scotia. Yeah. So Johnny Miles won in 1925 and 1929, I believe, somewhere in that time range. Maybe the early 30s. Right. And he has a marathon named after him for in uh, Nova Scotia, which I think is running next weekend. Okay. The, uh, I'm trying to think what the Sunday is. That'll be the 19th, I believe. So yeah, that race has been running for 40, 45 years. I'm originally from Nova Scotia, and uh, my brother is still there. 
Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I ran that uh, Bay of Fundy marathon one uh, okay. couple of Junes ago, maybe four years okay. ago. Yeah, okay. That, that was kind of fun. So it, it starts in the most eastern, northeasternmost point in the United States and runs into Canada and then runs back. Oh, okay. Yeah. So from Maine into New Brunswick and back. So from Maine into the island. Oh, okay. Okay. Out the island and then back. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. I forget the name of the island. Yeah, I do too, but I remember doing it. So you're from Calgary now. Yes. So give us the, the typical training weather in uh, Calgary in, in February when you're doing your 20-mile uh, long run. Well, Calgary's a different microclimate from the rest of the country because we will have what we call Chinooks coming in a couple of times through the winter to shoot the temperature up into double digits Celsius, maybe into the 50s. Hmm. And uh, you can usually count on that. And there's many a night where I'm out doing my run home and uh, I'll stop at a, a stoplight with a biker and I'll go, this has been a good winter. 2018, oddly enough, we did not enjoy that very much. So we had a lot of sub-zero temperatures, probably in the minus 15 to minus 20 range Celsius and tons of snow this year. Yeah. So uh, a lot of cookie dough to run through. And uh, a lot of icy conditions as well to keep things challenging. So, uh, yeah, it's not the most conducive or inviting weather to run in. But uh, I still managed to do most of my planned workload through February and March. So what's your training look like for Boston? I mean, you, you're you a qualified runner, so you're either naturally talented or you figured out how to train well. I would probably do four 10K runs a week. One of those sets would be hills, where I'd probably do six to eight climbs of third of a mile, yeah. 600 meters. Uh, probably do eight to ten climbs a week. And then I'd do a long run, uh, ranging from 25 to 35K every other week. So I'd probably average about 55 to 70k a week i probably peaked at 85k the third week of march yeah that's uh, not bad so yeah so i ran 85k that week and ran in a, a personal best in a half marathon about three weeks before boston yeah it's good tune up yeah so you're getting up to like 50 miles a week on four days a week that's average volume yeah. that's nothing nothing crazy then you're throwing in those hills and those hills count as tempo right yeah yeah so yeah. Hills, and uh hills are speed work in disguise yeah well i i also met with my run club tuesday nights to do speed work inside on a track so yeah. that was uh, another wrinkle in the training program as well yeah so this was was this your first boston yes oh, okay so you showed up at a good year <laughs> I don't know about that. It would be interesting to see how I do in uh, more temperate conditions. You know, so. Boston's never easy. You're almost better off having a good excuse. <laughs> well, my brother ran in 2012, so that was the, the year it was in the, the low 90s. Yeah. And uh, I remember following his race online that day and keeping an eye on the weather and just going, poor Andrew, just grinding it out through that. And he... I think he managed something in the 330s that day oh, and uh, yeah yeah a brilliant race under those conditions for, so yeah for somebody from the northern hemisphere absolutely yeah. yeah yeah i mean but i guess what i'm saying is that if you get good weather and then you race it still eats up a lot of the first timers because they don't know how to run the course and okay. the course sort of has this insidious design to it with the downhills 
and then the yeah. pills. Yeah. It's sort of, I don't know, it's almost like perfectly engineered to torture uh, you to eat runners who aren't yeah. who don't know the course. So like I said, you know, having having the bad weather probably could be seen as a blessing, right? Because then you don't have to worry about racing and it makes you slow down a little bit too. With the weather it's a legend unto itself now for the 2018 race. I mean, I was sitting in Hopkinton, just huddling whatever way I could to keep warm. And I just kind of took whatever expectation or pressure I uh, had pent up before the race and just said, get it in, get it over with and just have a good day. And uh, yeah, I think clearing my mind of, okay, I'm going to qualify for next year, getting that goal out of my head before I touch the line was probably a good way to get myself in the proper frame of mind for the race. Yeah, I avoided the uh, Athletes Village this year because I kind of knew what it would be like. But give me the 200 words on what the Athletes Village was like from a tourist view. (laughs) I felt like I was in an airport waiting to start on a very elaborate extended (laughs) evacuation. So I bust in and I probably arrived there quarter after 7, 7.30, and the fields that the tents were in were pretty boggy, and I want to apologize to all the students at those two schools for the uh, havoc we wreaked on their field. I don't know if they'll play on it again until August. But yeah, it was pretty boggy, getting muddy very fast, and inside the tents, it wasn't too bad. There wasn't a lot of opportunity to move around. One telltale sign outside the tent of what went on overnight was this two-foot pile of ice that was obviously sleet that clung to the tent overnight and fell off when it uh, got above 32 with uh, the dawn. And that was just kind of adding the wintry nor'easter feel to it before you got there. So it felt very huddled and cluttered and just crowded. I don't know if, if people had the opportunity to even contemplate stretching out or doing any of the things they'd done in the past. Yeah, you must have been afraid to go take off to use the Portageon because you lose your place, right? I wasn't too concerned. Oddly enough, when I went, my brother's wave got called. So when I came back, he was gone. And I'm like, okay, where are my shoes? Because <laughs> <laughs> I left a dry pair of shoes in the tent for me to put on once I got onto to pavement and told the line. But he'd already gone with his wave, and I just kind of skulked about going, okay, this is not a good time to be missing my shoes. Found them easily enough, but uh, yeah, there was a moment of momentary okay, panic. <laughs> not not full blown panic. I had an old pair of shoes that I would have been fine in, but uh, my intent was to retire them that day. So, how did you dress, and how should you have dressed? I guess is my question. I had two layers on: a long sleeve shirt, a short sleeve shirt. I also had a jacket with a broken zipper that I was committed to throwing off after half an hour or an hour, or whenever I warmed up, I had a Lycra toque, pyramids, and shorts. And I was hedging on whether or not to go in long pants or the shorts, but I decided to leave the long pants aside so I'd have something warm to get into at the end of it. I managed to survive that (laughs) poor decision. But yeah, the jacket I intended to toss aside, I never really got rid of until Boylston Street. Yeah, did you see how when you turned on the Boylston Street, all the clothing that was stuck to the pavement? Yes. Because it was like people wanted to get their photos without the coat on or something. Yeah, right? yeah, that was my rationale as too. But I also 
sense that I could survive that last mile without freezing to death. So I figured, okay, let's loosen the load. And the other thing was I was probably pulling that zipper up every 45 seconds through the day. <laughs> so it would drop, and I was like, oh, here we go again, and just pull that thing up. Yeah, we were talking before about uh, a lot of Canadians in the race. Even before Boston blew up to the race it is today, when I started running, there was always a couple thousand Canadians. Yeah. It's always been a very Canadian race. And other than that, I think the South Koreans are the other ones who really like it. South Koreans are always there. Okay. Yeah, you you see them on certain days. Probably not this time because we couldn't see anything except the pavement in front of you this year. Yeah, a good occasion to keep your head down. I mean, growing up, we would hear about Boston every April and whenever the buildup for the uh, Johnny Miles Marathon was taking place each spring, we were reminded of his history with the Boston Marathon as well. So, I mean, I had that drummed into me since I was nine or ten years old. Yeah, so, so growing up in Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia. Yeah. then yeah, Nova Scotia and, and Boston had uh, sort of an interesting, or not interesting, but a close relationship, right? Yeah. They, they were connected by a series of uh, natural disasters and that sort of thing where they helped each other out. So there's a, there's a lot of history there going back a couple hundred years. Yeah. And beyond that, even on a family level, I know of relatives who immigrated from Nova Scotia to, as they called it, the Boston states or New England, and they do their bit to send care packages home. And, you know, it was always intriguing to have family visit from New England and just whatever they brought back in terms of material or stories from New England was always valuable and interesting on a certain level. Yeah, because it's not that far away. I mean, it's hard to drive because the road's not that great, but um, you can take the ferry across yeah. from Maine in a couple hours, right? It's an overnight ferry up to Nova Scotia. It's pretty yeah. beautiful yeah. up there. I've been up there. Yeah. Indeed. So what are your like top one or two or three vivid visualized memories from the race this year, Pat? Probably the most vivid thing visually was the mass of runners. I have not been in a race with that many runners and to still see at the horizon, shoulder to shoulder runners, a half or a full mile ahead of me, just filling my sight line from my feet to the horizon was astounding just to to run with that large a group and just get a clear sense of how substantial the marathon is to the state of Massachusetts and the city of Boston was overwhelming. Like every time I dared to lift my eyes and and see that many people was astounding. The second big thing was the visual on Heartbreak Hill. And I mean, Heartbreak Hill, I've probably had visions of for decades of it being this hill that's going to crush you in one way or another. (laughs) And going through Newton, I came through an intersection. I saw a running store at the corner of this intersection called Heartbreak Hill Running Company. And I thought, okay. And it was mile 20. I always thought Heartbreak was at mile 21. So I climbed this hill and I'm chugging along and I'm making pretty good time and I'm comfortable. I'm not stressing out or anything like that. I'm not having that wall-like panic. And I get to the top and I see this inflatable arch few hundred meters in front of me and I see heartbreak and I'm like, eyes aren't too good and I get a little closer and it says heartbreak is over and I'm like what <laughs> and I look back over my shoulder because I'm thinking okay one more hill after this and then we're on our way downtown and I was like okay and just that moment of 
the build-up, the history or legend of that hill kind of being drilled into me for as long as I've heard about the race and surviving it and perhaps even thriving through it was astounding. And yeah. beyond that, probably the finish. To see the crowds that were there in those conditions, as loud as they were, that was a pretty remarkable finish. Yeah, it was a really overwhelming experience emotionally to get there and cross the line. Those are the big three. Just the masses of people getting through heartbreak and, and that finish was just astounding. That's a common thing too. I've been there myself where you get to the top of heartbreak and you look around and you go, was that heartbreak? Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, like you say, you know, you're waiting for it and you've been waiting for it for a couple hours and, yep. uh, and you don't want to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, not in a negative way. So, but it's what people don't realize is you see videos of the course, right? They'll drive the course. Mm-hmm. They show one at the expo, right? On yeah. race day, it's totally different. And it's not just the weather. It's all the crowds, right? You can't yeah. tell the course. It doesn't look the same no. because it's just screened by people, right? Yeah. And the other thing, I don't know if it was just the gray of, of that stormy day, but I was very conscious of how bare the trees that I did see were just these gnarly trees that were just kind of being battered by the weather throughout just kind of added a starkness to it visually this year. I don't know if that's the case every year or not, but I, I was conscious of just how bare the trees were on the route when when I saw them around Wellesley in particular. It's actually fairly early in the year, right? So the leaves aren't yeah. out yet. Yeah. The leaves aren't out yet. So the leaves don't come out till like this week, right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things. And plus, there's been a lot of construction on the course in the last 20 years. A lot of it was wooded, and it isn't wooded anymore. Okay. Right? It's condos and stuff now, right? Like everywhere that's, else in the world. <laughs> that's unfortunate. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Turning all our trees into houses. So what did you uh, what did you think afterwards? How did you finish? How did you feel when you get done? I had a 340. Is that good I or was- bad? For me, I was quite happy with it. I qualified with a 325. Okay. And when people asked me before the race, I said, I'd like to run a 325, but in this, 340 will do. So I lagged a little bit on the second half of the race, but the conditions were a good excuse to take whatever time I could. I was quite happy with 340. I mean, I've run the marathon here in Calgary three times, and every time I've tried it, it's been challenging and all three of those races were actually slower than what i ran uh last month so 340 is great so why do you think that is why do you think you performed well i'd say very much the biggest factor going in was my frame of mind i can honestly say that despite the weather or perhaps even because of it it was the most serene comfortable race i'd ever had and i've probably had three or four other races like that in the the last year and a half, two years. But that was the best frame of mind I'd ever run in. Throughout the day, I was very conscious of a couple of days later coming home and telling the story of the race, which would be a great story regardless of the conditions or the weather. But I was conscious of sharing the story of Boston with friends who had seen me pursue running at a more and more serious level over the last four or five years to strive to prepare for my first one, and then realized that the goal of qualifying was 
in line. So I go back to the closest I came to qualifying in November of 2016. I was running the Nashville Marathon, hmm. and it's the weekend after New York, so it's a, a, a relatively small race. Um, but I was heading to Nashville with some friends for a boys' weekend, and whenever we do that, uh, the plan is to see an NFL and an NHL game, and uh, I've made a point of looking for a race every time I've been there. So anyways, I saw that our weekend in the States landed on the weekend of the Nashville Marathon. Saw the medal, which is about a pound. Yeah. Weighs a pound. It's about six inches across and yeah. four or five inches high. It's just yeah. Texas like, rhinestone right. bling. And I thought, yeah. okay, I have to run it just to get that. And my intent for the weekend was to hang out with the guys. So we go out and we eat barbecue the night before instead of doing anything resembling a carb load. And we're up till... 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, watching stand-up comedy on Netflix, and I flop over on the sofa and finally get a couple of hours sleep in. And the next morning, I go downtown, and I run a 3.30 and 9 seconds. And Brilliant. Yeah, I know, and, and that was a personal best by 8 minutes. So whenever I tell the story of missing my BQ by 9 seconds, friends, running friends go, oh, that must have hurt. I said, no, 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 no. That was a great run. You know, I talked to a fellow runner, a young woman from Michigan who chatted with me for about half the race. It was her first race since becoming a mother and finishing university. She was in her late 20s, early 30s. And we just bonded and told our stories for that stretch of the race. Gorgeous day, not a cloud in the sky. And I was looking at the watch every once in a while going, I'm doing pretty good. And I just was hoping for a good race, not necessarily a BQ time. And just a, a great frame of mind then. And crossed the finish line. I laughed when I saw what I missed my qualifying time by. But I realized then how much of a privilege it is to run as much as I do, to put the time in every week and yeah. have so, a healthy okay. family and, and my own health to allow me to do that. Yeah, 3.30 probably wouldn't have got you at anyhow, right? So, no, 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 I yeah. realize that in retrospect. Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll tell you something that will make you feel awful. <laughs> in the old days, I did the same thing. I ran 11 seconds over the qualifier, okay. which at the time you got an extra 59 seconds. They rounded up, Okay. and nobody knew that, right? So I actually ran 71 seconds above the qualifier. Okay. And since uh, the race didn't fill up, you could mail your application in and get in anyhow. Okay, okay. <laughs> but how long ago was that? Oh, that would have been... A while. Late 90s, early okay. 2000s. Yeah. Okay, so... No, it would um, have been 2000. That would have been 2000, yeah. No, I, it never bothered me. I mean, I, I realize that above all, running is a hobby. There are other things that I could be doing with my time. So to have the opportunity to do it, the opportunity to get better at it on an ongoing basis as I head into my 50s now, there's a lot of things to be thankful for. And I very much feel like I'm playing with house money as, as far as... Yeah, so it just gets better the older you get, right? You enjoy a lot more. It doesn't chase you as much, right? No, no, no. Yeah, uh, so did you get to meet anybody or talk to anybody fun while you were out in the course? No, that was the unusual thing about Boston this time around. I think just the churn of people running at different paces and trying to find their way into their rhythm for the day, I rarely had a sense 
of being with a pack of people that was consistent for the entire race. I talked yeah. to a few people beforehand and after the race, but no, there wasn't really the opportunity. And I think everybody was just keeping their heads down to keep the wind out of their eyes. Yeah, I think so too. People definitely weren't talking this year because of the yeah. weather. Yeah. And the other thing, the sort of good news was not as many people were in headphones either because for a couple of reasons. One, the people who race Boston typically aren't the headphone crowd. Yeah. Yeah. And in the weather we had, you couldn't wear them anyhow. Right? Yeah. So, so, yeah. Interesting. No, I was going to say, what else do you remember from the trip? What are your sort of uh, top three takeaways from this year? Oh, I really appreciated sharing the experience with my brother. So he's run four times. So 2011, 2012, I want to say 2016 and this year. So, I mean, when he first did Boston, I was just getting into running. I'd probably done five or six half marathons at that time. And over the course of the last seven years, it's become a common topic of conversation. And we've run together and trained together off and on when we've been together. We ran a half marathon in similar conditions last May in Nova Scotia, and that was good. So, yeah, a big thing was running it with him. The second thing is just that calm state of mind that I experienced. I've realized over the last couple of years that that's the thing I want when I'm running. If I can measure a race by something, that will be the thing to go by as often or perhaps even more so than the time. Just being in, in that frame of mind was good. The third thing is probably the way people have bonded or attached themselves to the race this time around. And just the stories that have come out about recollections of 2013 and the individual stories of satisfaction with finishing and having a sense of privilege in running that they felt this year, regardless of the conditions. Those yeah. are probably the three things that uh, that yeah. I, I will hang on to for a long time. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the, th on the head there. People didn't see it as uh, somebody stole my race. They saw it as a gift, and it reinforced um, everything they were about in terms of running. So You cut out there for about 10 seconds. I said people didn't see it as a hardship. They saw it more of as, as a gift, yep. and it reinforced how they felt about themselves and their role and their place in the running world. Yeah, that, that was a really galvanizing part of the race this time around. I mean, a year ago when I was still full out obsessed with qualifying, I would get in a different frame of mind. I would I'd happily don the monkey or the 800 pound gorilla on my back and, and try and carry that for 26 miles. And the last three marathons I've run, it's been a different frame of mind. I'm very content to just go out there and see who I am on that day rather than use it as something to indicate where I am overall as a person. And on the heels of that, I'm actually going to uh, work as a, a pacer in uh, a half marathon at the end of this month. So I'm kind of looking forward to sharing my experience and giving back, as it were. Right. See how close you can get, right? See how close you yeah, can get the time. Yeah, let's see if I can do a two-hour half. <laughs> you should be able to do a two-hour half. Yeah, yeah. So okay. I haven't lived too much in Boston. Yeah, the risk would be that you'd end up running a 135 half <laughs> and uh, that all those poor two-hour people would be hanging on for the first five miles. 
and go, no, I can't do this. So, no, I think I'll find the discipline. Well, I'll let you go get back to your life here, Patrick. Thank you for helping me out and coming on and talking about your race. Thank you, Chris. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Broken Angels, a Takashi Kovacs novel by Richard K. Morgan. So I finished this book last weekend. It was very good. Hard sci-fi novel. Worth the read if you're a hard sci-fi fan. You could tuck it under your arm for a trip to the beach house this summer. I acquired this novel because I really loved the first book, Altered Carbon, with the same character. I rediscovered Altered Carbon when it was recently made into an excellent Netflix series. And that series hewed closely to the original novel and was very successful in doing so. Now, my understanding is that the Netflix series was quite popular on its own, but I felt like I enjoyed it more because I knew what was going on from having read the book. This is why the internet is a cool thing. This is the advantage of being able to crowdsource your selections. At some point over the last four to five years, I was looking for something to read and Googled best hard sci-fi novels. And this novel was one of those on the list. And that led me to the Netflix series. And now to this next book and probably the third book as well. I mean, that beats blundering around the stacks in the library or reading a hundred bad books to get there, doesn't it? So anyhow... Logically, if the Netflix show does well, they'll option another season. And if they do, they may use the raw material from the second novel. And I figured that gave me two good reasons to read the second novel in the series. One, I enjoyed the first novel. And two, I'd be ready for the next Netflix offering. I would imagine the central conceit of the novels would make them easier to produce as television. I don't think I'm giving anything away here. In this universe, humans have figured out how to digitize people and can put them into any body. They call this re-sleeving. So this means Netflix can cast anyone they want and not have to worry about character continuity. It's a win-win. So the main character in these series is an anti-hero type named Takashi Kovacs, and he has been trained as an envoy. Envoys were trained to not only be wonderfully efficient killers, but also in how to use their minds and their senses. And the original purpose of the envoys was some sort of revolution that they reference obliquely but never go into. In the first novel, Takashi is resleeved on Earth to solve a murder mystery, a bit of Dirty Dozen meets Maltese Falcon combination in the far future with Methuselah rich people. They wake up this badass to figure out something, and hilarity ensues. In the second novel, he continues to wander the universe like kung fu, and get involved in wars and other struggles. In this book, he finds it focuses on an archaeological discovery. And this isn't a spoiler, because this is the scene setting in the first chapter. I'm not spoiling anything. So the archaeological find is a gate to a millennia-old starship from an alien civilization. So the novels have basically everything I like about hard sci-fi. Lots of action, lots of tech, enough sex and drugs and violence to satisfy my inner 13-year-old. 
And in this universe, the galaxy was previously inhabited by an alien race of bird-like creatures. You still with me? We humans find their left-behind technology. We use their technology to get ahead ourselves. And that is the major conceit of this novel. Are we evolved enough as a race to handle our newfound ability to inhabit the galaxy? In this way, the second novel is much more introspective. It thinks less about the original conceit of never really being able to die and more about the nature of civilization itself. It draws a parallel between the constantly, pointlessly warring humans and the supposedly enlightened ancient alien race in whose footsteps we are tottering around the galaxy. All this deep thinking about who we are and what we will become is laying on top of a classic drop-a-small-skilled-team-into-an-unknown-adventure setup like any Michael Crichton novel. Now, I won't spoil the ending. There's a resolution of sorts. But I think it's also a setup to bring those aliens back from retirement in the future novel, future adventure. It's a good read. Maybe not as fresh and exciting as the first novel, but definitely well-constructed and well thought through. And now I'm all prepared for when Netflix gets around to making a new season, which, if it's going to happen, will be starting sometime in the fall of 2018. But just to be safe, I'm going to start in on the third Takashi Kovacs novel called Woken Furies. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends. You have stumbled down a rocky slope to the bottom of the mountain that was episode 4-386 of the Run Run Live podcast. Mission accomplished. Have a smoothie. Throw in a little extra kale. I started figuring out the logistics for my 100-miler. It is the Burning River 100-mile. It's in southern Ohio. And it starts on Saturday, July 28th at 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm not going to try to guess a finish time, but it will be sometime Sunday morning. It's a point-to-point. They bus you out from the finish at 3 o'clock in the morning for the 4 a.m. start. And the course doesn't look too bad. It's only got a few thousand feet of gain and loss over the hundred. So, I mean, nothing like the Wapak Trail Race, right? Uh, The timing's a bit troublesome. With that early start and the bus ride... Uh, I'll be running the last half of that race in the dark, and it doesn't sound like I'll be getting a lot of sleep that weekend. Uh, So there you go. I haven't decided if I'm going to drive out or what I'm going to do with a hotel or camper or whatever. You know, I I know I won't be in any shape to drive afterwards, so I'll figure all that out. But this is where you come in. I need pacers. I need a crew. So who wants to come pace me through a section of the last 50 miles? I'm going to be super slow. It's going to be the middle of the night. And all you have to do is keep me on course and say encouraging things like, come on, you can barely see the bone protruding through the skin. Rub some dirt on it. Suck it up. You know, stuff like that. So shoot me an email. We'll make a date. And guess what else? I got my old motorcycle running this week. Yep. That bike that I bought factory fresh in 1985, it lives. So here's here's your story. Last summer, towards the end of the summer, the clutch started going soft on me. So I didn't have the time, the money, the energy to attend to it. I just packed it away in the garage for the winter. 
So I dropped it off last week at the shop and had them take a look. Now, with a clutch problem, it can either be simple or it can be hard, cheap or expensive. It might simply be air in the line or fluid problems or a leak in the line. Or it can be more complex, like the slave cylinder or the oil seals, where the clutch meets the engine. And I was a bit terrified that this was going to be one of those take-the-engine-apart kind of experiences. And I know from my car clutch experiences that if this was a car, the clutch could run me, you know, $1,500, $2,000. And I wasn't really excited about spending that kind of money on a $1,000 motorcycle. So I called the guy and I asked, uh, hey, you figured out what's wrong? And he said, you'll have to call me back later. We're still building the estimate. And that sounded to me like I should start mentally preparing for the worst. So then I called back. And my heart sank when he said, you know, I'm sorry, but it's it's the slave cylinder and a couple oil seals. And then he continued reluctantly, it's going to be $238. <laughs> so I heaved a sigh of relief, and I told him to go ahead. So you got to love the simple engineering of a Honda motorcycle. And it turns out, I will see you out there. And then he thought... That he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry Here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go! <clears throat> quiet, quiet in the courtroom. <laughs>